So welcome to our Sunday School series on the doctrine of worship. This is uh, week 12 of us considering this topic, Biblical and Reformed Worship. And um, I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end. We've been going for 12 weeks, and I think we might uh, wrap it up in another six to seven weeks. So there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I want to kind of recap what we have been talking about. This is the big picture of what we've been focusing on these last three weeks. Big picture being, what is true worship? It is a combination of these three things. An obedient and godly life, that's what we considered most specifically last week. That all throughout the Old Testament, God rebukes Israel, particularly uh, through the prophets, for going through the ritual of public worship without an obedient and godly life, without seeking justice, without living humbly before the Lord, without loving their neighbor in a sense, right? Uh, Obedience is greater than sacrifice. But we also have been considering how private worship and public worship also relate to this. The true worship is found not in the exclusion of one of these three to the neglect of the other two, but in a combination of all three of these things. An obedient life, public worship, and private worship make up what is true worship in the Christian life. However, just because all these three things are important doesn't mean that there's not something, one thing particular, that drives true worship or that drives and fuels the other two. So what I'm arguing in these last few weeks is that public worship is the big, large gear here that turns and fuels godly and obedient living and private worship. I'm not trying to say that public worship is more important than the other two because they're all three equally important. But what I am trying to say is that public worship is the most essential aspect of worship And that public worship is what fuels our godly living, fuels our private worship as well. So that's kind of the big picture of what we're we're considering, particularly these last few weeks. So the main question that I want to answer this week is, and this is what we posed last week as well, so we're still kind of on this particular question. If we can worship God anywhere and anytime, which we saw from Scripture last week, we don't have to just be in a temple, right, in Jerusalem. We can worship God anywhere. This is a blessing of the new covenant. We don't have to become citizens of a nation, uh, but the people of God are spread abroad. If we can worship anywhere and we can worship at any time, And if all of life is worship in some sense, that's again what I argued last week, and not that everything in life can be called worship, but that everything we do in life um, ought to be done from a worshipful heart. Love, justice, mercy, obedience is better than sacrifice. If these things are true, then why go to church? If I can worship God anywhere, why go to church? Why have public worship at all? That's kind of, again, what we're trying to answer today. 
And so last week, we considered this question in relation to how corporate worship, the meeting of God's people together, is distinct in Scripture from private worship. We saw that as a practice in both Old Testament and New Testament. There are commands in Scripture for God's people to gather. Right? So it's God-ordained. It's not just like we think it's a good idea for us to come together on Sunday mornings. This is something we saw as a command in Scripture, and we saw it as well as a practice, as in um, it was an example that we see that that the early church did. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, the early church, uh, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, to prayers. So we see the early church doing this, and we also see commands in Scripture as well to come together in corporate worship. So it's distinct from private worship. We also consider last week how the elements themselves are corporate in nature. The Lord's Supper is not something that we do privately. Baptism is not something we can do by ourselves, although John Smith, the first famous English Baptist, baptized himself. That's, a, that's another story. It's because nobody would baptize him, right? He was under persecution. Um, but the elements themselves are corporate in nature. Uh, We even look at how praying in Scripture is often believers coming together to pray. We saw how preaching is something that coming together. Uh, We consider that in relation to even the reading of the Word of God. It's something that's to be done publicly. So, corporate worship is distinct, both as a command, as a practice, but also the elements of corporate worship, excuse me, of worship are corporate in nature. So, our plan for today... I doubt we're going to get through all this. (laughs) I want to argue for the special presence of God in corporate worship. And we're going to take two weeks on this. Big picture this week, details next week. But I want to show you from Scripture how there is a special presence of God in corporate worship. And I want to look at Old Testament, New Testament imagery, temple imagery, to show this, I want to look at the specific elements of worship themselves. And this is what actually we're going to get to next week right here. These, we're going to finish this and then hopefully begin on this. And we're going to look at why corporate worship is unique in relation to the law gospel distinction. So the plan for today, corporate worship is unique because God's special presence. And then in two weeks, corporate worship is unique because of what's going on as we understand that worship is not just us doing things for God, but it's God doing things for us. So that's kind of where we're going. Again, the big question. Why is corporate worship unique? Why is there more New Testament emphasis on corporate worship rather than emphasis on worship being all of life? Why is there relatively little emphasis on private worship in the New Testament? I mean, think about it. There's very little emphasis on private worship in the New Testament. And we'll actually, we'll see this in just a minute because we've got to pay attention to um, pronouns. 
What is going on when we worship with God's people? What's happening? Why is it unique? So, in this sense, I ask the question, why is corporate worship emphasized in the New Testament as a practice? Why is it emphasized? Is it, for example, simply about having community? And I say this because that's largely what people, you, you, you often hear nowadays in the church, that corporate worship is important because of community. But I'm going to argue specifically today, it's not just about community. Community is important. Loving one another, coming alongside one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, stirring up one another good works is very, very important. But I don't think that that is the emphasis of the New Testament. I don't think that's why uh, the New Testament emphasizes corporate worship. There's something more profound here. God isn't just ensuring that we don't live isolated lives. There's more to it than that. And so that's where we're headed. That's what we want to answer today. Why is it unique? Why is it emphasized in the New Testament? Now, last week I had you guys um, look up a lot of Bible verses. Um, I think this week I put most of them on the screen uh, to make things go a little faster. Um, so, again, today we're just kind of looking at a number of scriptures. And we're considering this big question of the presence of God in corporate worship. Corporate worship is unique because God is present through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is key. In a way that is unique to His presence in all of creation or His presence in the hearts and lives of His people individually. This raises the question, isn't God present everywhere? When we say He's present in corporate worship, what exactly do we mean by that? Because don't we speak of God's omnipresence, right? Think of the children's catechism here. Where is God? He's everywhere. And my daughter Hannah would always add, even in my room. (laughs) He's everywhere. God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. So what do we mean by His presence in corporate worship? Well, first, of course, we do see that God is omnipresent. David in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's nowhere, David recognizes, that he can escape the presence of God. We see this in Jeremiah 23, 23 as well. Am I a God at hand? That means near, right? Declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Like, I'm near, he says. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is present everywhere. This is a basic fact, truth of Scripture based upon the attributes and nature of who God is. 
But what I'm going to argue is that God is still uniquely present in certain places. Can you guys think of where he might be uniquely present? One thing off the top of your head? Well, I'm getting there. Come on. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Communion, I'm getting there as well. Think more broadly. Think Temple, yes, that's where I'm going as well. But think about in heaven. Don't we speak of God in heaven? You guys, you guys are tracking. That's good. That's good. That's good. But I'm thinking like, hey, in, in, a, in, a, in a broader sense, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Isaiah 66. Even the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Why, is Jesus denying that God is omnipresent when He says... Our Father in heaven? No. Heaven is the place of his special presence, the full manifestation of his glory. He is unique in heaven, excuse me, he is present in heaven in a very unique way, unlike his presence on earth. Are we all clear on that? We agree. Okay, good, good, good. All right. Another place of God's unique presence would be in Eden, the first earthly temple. Eden was created as a temple. It was a place that God created so that He could dwell with man. I've got a long quote here from uh, Meredith Klein. Uh Excuse the, uh, the language, he's, he's uh, going to use big words. The Garden of Eden was a microcosmic, earthly version of the cosmic temple and the site of a visible local projection of the heavenly temple. At the first, man's native dwelling place coincided with God's earthly dwelling. This focal sanctuary in Eden was designed to be a medium whereby man might experience the joy of the presence of God in a way and on a scale most suited to his nature and condition as an earthly creature. Again, big words here. But the point is that Scripture teaches that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. And God created it in in a, a in a way, suited to man's nature and condition as a creature, where he could dwell with his creation. It was a sanctuary. It was a temple. It was the place where the special presence of God was at. And that's why, obviously, when Adam and Eve sinned, God's presence is there. Adam, where are you? The presence of God in Eden is then the framework or the archetype for God's presence in the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. So you understand that God's making Eden a temple is the framework by which then the temple and tabernacle are given to Israel, that they are modeled after that original um, 
sanctuary. In Exodus 29, 42, God is instructing Israel, and He's talking about the tabernacle and the offerings, burnt offerings, the tent of meeting where I will meet with you to speak to you there. This is unique. There I will meet with the people of Israel. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. They shall know I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt that I might dwell among them. So again, we can't say God's omnipresent in the same way everywhere because He brought them out of Egypt so that He might dwell among them in the tent of meeting where He would meet with them, there where He would speak with them as well. The tabernacle and the temple was home to the special presence of God, the unique presence of God. This is what made Israel unique. We see this very visibly displayed in 1 Chronicles 7.1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is with the temple now, before it was the tabernacle, this is reference to the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a glory cloud. It's the cloud that descended on Sinai. It's the cloud that descended on the tabernacle. It's the cloud that descended and filled the temple at the dedication as well. This is what made Israel unique. The presence of God in His temple. The presence of God in His temple also was the reason why Israel was called to be holy. So that His presence wouldn't lash out at them in His wrath, or leave, or depart. This is beyond the scope of this study, but I'll kind of remind you of our study of Leviticus last fall. All of the cleanliness rituals, um, the washings, the sacrifices, the holiness there, all of them are to portray the sinfulness, the natural sinfulness of man, But all of these things, all the the different prescriptions that God gives were given so that, he says over and over again, so that I might not break out against you. The, The problem is that when God fills this temple, Israel's still sinful. And they're living next to the presence of God. And the question of Leviticus and all throughout, actually, the Old Testament is how can God dwell with a filthy, sinful people? And so he prescribes these sacrifices and rituals to communicate this. And obviously, ultimately, he does break out against them in wrath and he does leave and depart them. The cleanliness laws and sacrifices were the answer to how a God could dwell with a sinful people. In fact, I guess... 1 Corinthians 3.16, we don't have to get into it now, but that's what Paul... Uh, says to the Corinthians when he talks about them being a temple. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple? And he uses that as an exhortation to holiness, to godliness. He, He appeals to this very idea 
that God will punish and, and, and kind of lash out um, in His wrath um, in the presence of, of sin. And so eventually we know what happen, happened with Israel. Glory cloud filling the temple eventually left upon the nation's disobedience. This is really depicted in Ezekiel 10. It's this dramatic scene where the glory cloud visibly ascends and leaves. And judgment on the nation is then announced and then executed. And God's presence never returned to the temple. Never returned to Israel. Even though they rebuilt the temple, Herod's temple after the exile... His presence never returned. You have a question, Mark? Uh, to some extent, in Jesus. Well, that <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so that leads us to a question, Mark. Where is God's presence now? Was it just for the temple? Was it just for the Old Testament? Well, of course, we know that Jesus is the new temple. John one fourteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally dwelt, tabernacle. The Word, the eternal Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see in John one fifty one Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Essentially, this is like a ladder from heaven extending, or a ziggurat, uh, extending from earth to heaven. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the gateway between heaven and earth. He is the meeting place of God and man. That's what he's saying in John one fifty one. Of course, we see this explicitly in John 2. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. He is the Old Testament temple. He is the Old Testament tabernacle. But where is Christ's body right now? You know, so often we think of the metaphor, the body of Christ, and I don't think we actually, you know, we've heard it so many times, we don't actually consider, you know, what the metaphor communicates. The body, right? Hands, feet of Christ. Christ is the head. The head is in heaven. I often, you know, picture it as, you know, the head is in the clouds, right? In heaven. And the body is on earth. The church is Christ's body here on earth. Romans 12.5 For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. There are many of us that make up one body. This is something I've wondered about before with the, the, whole, the phrase the body of Christ. Uh, sometimes it shows up here as the body in Christ, and that makes me wonder. If, I mean, 
don't I don't know anything about the original language, but possibly that you know, like when it says the body of Christ, maybe it just means the body that came from Christ, basically. So we're not it's not like we're actually um, uh, it's I feel like it might be misinterpreted as we like taking too literally we are the hands and feet of Christ. Yeah. Uh, we are his messengers, but not we we aren't perfect representations of Christ. Yeah, definitely not perfect rep- representations of I mean speak for yourself, Mark, but <laughs> what I'm saying is it, I feel like it can lead to um Overestimate uh, an overestimation of what we're trying to attain. Yeah, using the phrase "the body of Christ." Well, where I'm going is that the the church corporate is the body of Christ, most specifically, and it's when we gather together that the body, in a sense, is most visible. So individually, out in the world, um, you don't get a picture of the body of Christ because the body of Christ is diverse. There are many gifts. There are many graces, and it's when the body comes together that the full manifestation of the body is seen. Um, but I'd also push back a little bit. I do think the New Testament says both. In Christ, we're, we're the body of, uh, in Christ, but we're also the body of Christ. Like, for example, um, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul, and he says, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he was persecuting the church. He wasn't persecuting Christ, per se. He's persecuting the church. But Jesus speaks, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting my body. That's why Paul uh, in in, uh, Colossians talks about filling up the afflictions of the body of Christ. Uh, Roman Catholics run with that, right? They say, oh yeah, there's, there's more afflictions that need to be, you know, uh, Christ's sacrifice isn't perfect, essentially, is what they argue. It's blasphemy. But Paul is identifying his ministry as the ministry of Christ. And he's saying, the persecution that I receive is, is my participation in the persecution, the ongoing affliction uh, that men are um, um, leveraging against Christ. The ongoing affliction that men are of the war that men are raging against Christ. But good thought, and maybe a couple more verses will open some things up for you. Here again, though, just as the body is one and has many members, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it's not just in Christ one body, but the members themselves are one body. And again, the point that I made earlier is you can't look at this individually. You've got to look at it corporately. All the members, though many, are one body. And that's the key. So there's the body of Christ. It's God's presence here on earth. Excuse me, Christ's presence here on earth. But also, of course, the church corporate is a spiritual temple here on earth as well. The imagery is picked up. So we have the body imagery, but we also have the temple imagery. 2 Corinthians 6.16 Paul is talking about idolatry. He's saying, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
You don't dabble in idolatry, Corinthian church. We are the temple of the living God. We, plural, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We're calling the Old Testament. What we looked at out of Exodus. We are the temple of the living God. The temple is the place of God's presence. His special presence. We see this again. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Uh, Kim, you're going to love this language here. I changed the wording to emphasize what it says in the original language. It's a plural you. It's not a singular you. And so being a southerner, the plural you is what? Y'all. Do y'all, you all, all of you, not know that y'all are God's temple? He doesn't say you are God's temple. He says you all are God's temple. And that God's Spirit dwells in y'all. Corporate. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. That's what I mentioned earlier when I quoted this, uh, referenced this verse. And y'all are that temple. He's talking about divisions in the church. Right? And he's saying, oh, you're of Paul, you're of Apollos, right? There's divisions among you. And he's saying, don't you get it? And, and that, that's the key. This, this right here is the key. You've got to understand the context. He says this in reference to the fact that there are divisions in the church. And people were acting individualistically. He doesn't say you personally, individually, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, even though that is true in some sense. His whole point is that you together are God's temple. You together are the place of God's dwelling. And it's undermining this fact when you act individualistically and you have divisions among you. Because this is not an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. So the church corporate is a spiritual temple here on earth. Again, we see this in 1 Peter. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Right? Again, they are plural pronouns here. And what's going on? You're being built up as a spiritual house. This is connected with one another. This building up is sanctification. And the worship of offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, happens together. The corporate nature of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. It happens when we come together. Not a verse that is referencing private worship, but corporate worship. Of course, if you look at the context, this directly comes as a result of the preaching of God's Word. Again, we looked at that last week, actually, 1 Peter 1.25 and how this is something that, again, it happens in the 
context of corporate worship. So the building up happens as a result of the preaching when we come together corporately and offer spiritual sacrifices corporately, together, that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's my point. That's Peter's point. All right. Oh, okay, another one. I told you there would be a lot of verses today. Ephesians 4.11 He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's body language again, and there's building up, right? Until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the fullness of Christ's body, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, my, my point, what I'm trying to bring out here is that this building up, this maturity to the measure and status of the fullness of Christ, this growing up in every way into Him is, uh, who is the head, happens when we are joined and held together. And each part is working properly together. And it builds itself up in love. This is actually kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But uh, in some sense, it's also looking back, because we've talked already about the means of grace, right? The things that we do when we come together. uh, The elements of worship when we come together that that have God's special promises attached to them. The point, again, when we come together, joined and held together, is when we grow up into the measure and fullness of Christ. All right. Conclusion. What is going on when we gather in worship? This is the concluding text here based upon everything that we've already considered. I'm going to point you to Hebrews 12, 18. The writer of Hebrews tells the church there that you have not come to what may be touched. He references Mount Sinai. A blazing fire in darkness of gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Remember, Israel was like, all right, God, we can't hear, stand to hear your voice anymore. Please talk to Moses and have him talk to us. We can't take it. He says, you haven't come to that. You have come to Mount Zion, though, into the city of the living God, the dwelling place of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the, than the blood of Abel. These are the things that you've come to, church. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God, is a consuming fire. What is the point I want to make from this? That every Lord's Day gathering, 
You don't come to an earthly type, a tabernacle, a temple, or a building. But you come to the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality, which those things only partially depicted in earthly form. And you come into the holy of holies by faith through the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God. And you come to the presence of angels, the spirits of the saints, the church as a whole, and to God the Father in Jesus Christ. This is what is present when we come together in worship. It's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Come to this earthly type, but you come to this spiritual thing, the spiritual reality, and all of this is present. These things are spiritual rather than earthly and visible realities. And I just want a, a side note here. By definition, worldliness includes man's attempt to visibly mediate the special presence of God with things of this world. What do I mean by that? Paul in Galatians talks about the Mosaic Law as worldly. Elements of the world. Not normally what we think of as worldliness, right? Isn't worldliness drinking, dancing, and smoking? (laughs) In our day? (laughs) To Paul, worldliness, at least in some contexts, includes a worldly physical attempt to mediate this spiritual presence of God using things of this world. And that's ultimately why Roman Catholicism and idolatry, they attempt in many respects to do this with the office of the priest, with holy water, with incense, um, calling the Lord's Supper a sacrifice. And, you know, they're using things that we can see and images particularly and idols, things that we can see, things that we can touch to mediate the special presence of God. But the author of Hebrews is saying, you've come to all this that's only visible with the eyes of faith. It's a spiritual reality. God's presence in worship is only seen with the eyes of faith. But that doesn't mean, obviously, that He isn't there. Just because we can't see it visibly. So, before we look at looking ahead, oh, we gotta, we got to stop. Looking ahead, what am I going to do? Where, where are we going to go from here? Well, I told you that was the big picture. Body of Christ. The temple. The special presence when we come together. The building up of the church when we come together. Next week, I'm going to look more specifically. I'm going to look at how the New Testament speaks about the presence of Christ in a particular way in our prayers and in our song. Again, the presence of Christ in a unique way that's different from all of creation. And we'll see how the New Testament speaks of the presence of Christ, particularly in the preaching. In the Lord's Supper, and even in church discipline, where two or three are gathered, as John mentioned earlier, is one of them right there. There I am in their midst. Christ, and other things, uh, Christ is present in a unique way in these things, 
And this is, of course, taught by the New Testament, and that's what we're going to look at specifically. These passages that point to Christ's special presence in these specific things. And this will, again, uh, then open up for us to talk about the law gospel distinction in worship. Because of Christ's presence in worship, we can be sure that he especially works through corporate worship for our sanctification. Worship is more than just what we do for God. It's something that God does for us. All right. Any last questions? I know it's a lot of material, a lot of verses. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the mercies that you have shown us in Christ. We praise you, Father, that through the work of Jesus Christ, you again dwell with your people in a special way, and that this is but a foretaste of uh, the eternal consummation when we will see you and live with you face to face for all of eternity. And we may declare on that day the dwelling place of God is with man once again. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us these mercies in Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can now turn towards the worship of your name and be assured of your promises, of your blessing, and of your presence. We pray, Father, indeed, that you would be with us this hour and glorify your name in and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.